Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught offside from the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn. Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Oh, my face hurts a bit, to be honest with you, Andrew. J.J., for those who don't know, was in a horrible bike accident. Don't say it like that. How dare you? Don't don't ever tempt the fates. I had a little knock off my bike. Um, you texted was, me the other day and you just said, hey, when are we doing the pod this week? Just wanted to check and see. Oh, by the way, I was hit by a car. It's like, oh, wait, what? Yeah, but the, burying the lead. Yeah, but the thing about it is, Andrew, is that you worry. You, it's just in you to worry. Well, and, yeah, I'm Jewish. We're yeah. people of worriers. Yeah, and, I, and I'm Irish Catholic from long lines of worriers. <laughs> Our two, our two peoples are very, very on the same page with the worrying, always with the worrying. Um, and you know, should I even be saying this? Like when my parents get upset, if they hear this and they tune in, I'm fine. I haven't told them. There's no way I'm telling them. What? You can't have people. I'm not hurt. I'm fine. It's okay. It's a, a graze to my face, you know, but the, you're covered in, in bruises and, and blood and, and no, I'm not, wounds. I'm not. This, these are superficial wounds. Can you can you stop being such a dramatic Annie for one second? Uh, but anyways, the moral of the story is, kids, um, always wear your helmet. Always, I did. The moral of the story is, if I were mayor, on day one, biking in New York City illegal. All bikes would be rounded up. They would be thrown into the East River. Uh, And that would be that because I cannot tell you. And look, I am a bike proponent. I enjoy riding my bike. Uh, I think it's great exercise, but I cannot tell you from driving around New York City how many near misses of horrible accidents I see because of people on bikes. Well, there's an issue in terms of uh, protected bike lanes. There's an issue of the fact that we don't have enough of them. Um, There's also just a general, there's far too many cars on the road for a city of this, of this size, of, of this it's the too many people own cars, too many cars on the road, and um, we haven't the pop, proper public infrastructure that tr- public transport infrastructure that can that can change that. Um, and biking should be encouraged, but yeah, I agree with you. Sometimes it's not safe, but um, I'll tell you what is safe. Oh, what a safe podcast we've got for you. What kind of attempt at a transition was that? What does that even mean? A safe podcast, a, a podcast that people can enjoy without getting um superficial scars to the face well all i want to say is i worry about you i care for you deeply can we get off this subject it's not you it's unfair if it happened to you you wouldn't allow me to speak about it i i need you say you need to be wearing a helmet that's not enough i i'm gonna buy you some shoulder pads some knee pads um i want you looking like the stay puff marshmallow man every time you get on your bike is essentially what i'm saying well if i don't bike that's what i look like in real life through just adipose tissue deposited around my body so that's why i do bike it's important andrew um, can I can I give you before we get into the podcast, which the oh. the meat of this podcast, very quickly, uh, Andrew tried very hard to send me one of the best gifts. Oh. Actually, this was in the spirit of what I'm trying to do with some podcast merchandising, which I'm still working on with our overlords at ESPN. Andrew, just the best gift ever. It, it was absolutely. No, no, how could it be a great gift if it doesn't happen? Well, it was. I'll, I'll let the people in on on on, on what it was. It was. The winner of the 80s footballers aging badly world championship, Nivaldo, on a t-shirt. Yeah. His bald 
old 27 year old head <laughs> on a t-shirt and it was just awesome it's so niche it's so me it's it's from um, the recesses the dark corners of, of soccer twitter um and i'm just gutted because he's been classed as a celebrity so someone who could sue the, co- the t-shirt company for image rights it can't happen so right, i'm devastated. I went to some just like generic like hey we make t-shirts thing on the web and you can put whatever you want on the shirt so i thought nivaldo like who who would have a problem with that but i guess it violates some kind of uh i don't know right to publish or or something i, I don't know it's, 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 all not, it's all nonsense it's not right but you know what's not nonsense? This oh, podcast. <laughs> All right. That's a, a slightly better attempt at a transition. He is right. It's not nonsense. It's going to be a good podcast. There's been some good midweek action. Uh, Manchester City, Manchester United, both in action uh, earlier today. We'll talk about that. Another bad loss for Chelsea as uh, Frank Lampard's situation just only seems to worsen. And while we're talking about Chelsea, really the highlight of this podcast for me, uh, for many of you out there who are obsessive American fans uh, like we are here on this show. Um, Ali Franklin Wallace of GQ magazine wrote an article, a feature on Christian Pulisic this week. And it was very interesting, um, mainly because we just, it's just not really a, a sports celebrity that we know a ton about. Like we all feel like we know him because he's been, he's been in front of us and, and performing at such a high level since he was 17 years old. Uh, so he's only 22 now, but that's five years that we feel like we've watched this guy week in, week out, and we feel like we know him, but we really don't. And so features like this are, are kind of rare glimpses into Pulisic and what he's about. And so Ollie got access from GQ Uh, The feature is up now. Uh, It's on newsstands now. It's the February edition of GQ magazine, but he's going to join us shortly. And we're going to really, I mean, I know I have a ton of questions prepared just like to give us the insight on like what Christian Pulisic is like, because it's to me, to me, it's interesting. He's the best soccer player in this country right now. And he's on track to be maybe the best soccer player in this country ever. There are some people that think he already is. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just curious. I have a curiosity about him. So that should be, that should be very interesting. I think. Not since the water cooler photos pre 2002 world cup, have we seen us soccer stars in a spread like a us soccer star in a spread like this? I'd be fairly confident in saying that. Yeah, uh, I would agree. And like one thing that was interesting because it's GQ magazine, like the feature is accompanied by a, a pretty like, you know, stylish photo shoot of like Christian in very like, how would you describe the kind of clothing that he's wearing? It's very like modern hip. Uh, um, yeah, I guess modern. I mean, you're talking to two guys who wear hoodies most of the day from, from now on, but yeah, kind of, um, I suppose, you know, a, what is that? What, what is the, the wealthy young gentleman, wearing these days you know he's there's some tank top shots there's some brooding shots there's some what's coming back in which i didn't realize is the big buckle belt for the jeans andrew so Um, yeah well i wanted to mention that is that like gq i i suppose is supposed to be cutting edge when it comes to style and mm. fashion and like for the last however many years what we'd say 10 years tight like super tight skinny jeans has been in but like what he's wearing in this in the spread i think is a little baggy are we heading back to 90s fashion? I, I It appears to be the case. Like, you're seeing a lot of stuff that was... You're right. We spent about a decade in the fitted zone. And there was various zones of that. There was the skinny tight, but there was the general fitted 
garments, fitted jackets, and now it seems to be expanding a bit. I mean, he, and it's not Charles Barkley's pants, but it's you know things are getting a little bit wider. I can't, I can't picture it. A society of people wearing baggy clothing again. I just, like, I can't even, I can't envision it. You never left though the the mid nineties jean style. The, that is not true. You never went. You never went skinny. You went maybe slim fit. Maybe. Well, yeah, yeah. But I was never even in the nineties. Like you know, I don't JJ. I don't conform to the trends. So in the nineties, when your baggy, body doesn't conform to human trends, I have I have weird body syndrome. It's hard for me to conform to any stylistic trends. But in the nineties, when super baggy was in, I was wearing normal. And now when super tight is in, I kind of still wear normal. Like I just wear what I like. I could model you. We could do an Andrew Gundling uh, GQ uh, photo shoot and just say the norm core revisionist. You are always norm core. That's what you are. I've never heard that term, norm yeah, core. Norm core was the one that came in after. So we, we had this kind of hipster revolution where everyone was dressing like a cobbler in <laughs> Williamsburg, a 19th century cobbler. And then we had a kind of a push towards normcore, which has kind of pushed back now into um, baggier stuff. At least that's what I've been. Yeah, who who are you? Like you're on the front lines of this. I'm trying to make this conversation interesting. For well, let's let's now go deeper into Chelsea. Uh, they lose two 0 to Leicester City. So before we get to the Chelsea aspect of this, because we've spent a lot of time, you know, we did in the club with Chelsea. We we've talked about what's up with them. We have not talked quite as much about what is up with Leicester as they have once again risen up the table and have found themselves in a, in a spot that has become not all that unfamiliar for that club. So let's talk about them for a sec. I mean, like, just how seriously are they to be taken as title contenders? There's a, there just seems to be a bit more um, grit and steel about them right now because I know they had the good win early on against Manchester City. And then in my own mind, I dismissed them somewhat when, when Liverpool swatted them aside. But that wasn't fair. This was a performance against Chelsea that was very, very good and tactically mature. And and maybe a move away from death by football. I mean, Brendan Rodgers perhaps got the perfect... I hate saying that because... I'm I'm going to go back to what I'm saying about Leicester now. I do think Leicester are a very good team. I do think Rodgers is going doing a, a, a decent job there. But I think when you have a Chelsea team that is so impotent in attack and you've got a Rodgers side that can hit them on the break, realize that Chelsea's fullbacks will push up, get in behind, run the channels. I mean, they had so many different ways to attack this Chelsea team. Andrew, it looked like a tactical masterclass of a manager against a manager who had no clue what to do with his players. His players were sleepwalking. Like, as much as I want to give Leicester praise, and I will. Okay, let's do it this way. Castagna was brilliant from the start. Absolutely brilliant. Indeedy in midfield overran Chelsea. Um, uh, Madison looked very, very lively, as did Harvey Barnes. Mark Brighton was excellent. Um, Fofana at the back. I mean, again, against that Chelsea attack, which is supposed to be so, po- so potent, he was like late stage or, or prime stage Rio Ferdinand back there. He he dominated. Um, Leicester were excellent, but Chelsea were just just such a non-event, like staggeringly bad in, yeah. in every way you can think of. Tactically, shape-wise, uh, dare I say it, effort. Um well, Frank Lampard said it, so I don't. So I dare say it. Well, we'll, um, get, we'll get to that element. And tactically, just no, tactically, just nowhere. And the and again, I, you know, I'm a broken record. The only time it, it seemed to click for Chelsea 
was when Pulisic would come in off the line. And there was one moment where he drifts into the center because he's not getting anything in the wide channel. He links with Kai Havertz, the one two. The only time Havertz looked anyways decent. And the ball uh, breaks, I think, to, to Abraham and he gets a shot off. Otherwise, Andrew, they were um, they were desperate. desperate. Yeah. Ultimately, that is that was my takeaway as well. That this was not like there. I didn't walk away from this questioning who the better team was. And if you're Chelsea, that is that is jarring to consider when you think about the money that was spent uh, this past transfer window to beef up this squad and make them not top four contenders, but title contenders. The fact that they're going up against Leicester City and the gulf in in class between the two teams is noticeable and it's not in Chelsea's favor. Uh, that is that is truly worrisome. Now, having said that, I will say one thing on Chelsea's behalf. And I know we can say this a lot of times about a lot of different games, but JJ, there was part of me when it was over that was thinking it is a thin line between total crap and grinding out a solid point. Because if you look at this game, um, not even talking for a minute about the Leicester City goals, but looking at Chelsea, you have Christian Pulisic who's fouled in the box, we think, and then we come to find out that he's a centimeter outside of it. So this, it's very this close. What, this, this is what we're going on now, is but it? But I'm just saying, it's very close to winning a penalty. Oof. And then you look at Timo Werner later in the game, who was rightfully ruled as, as offside. But it, again, it was about a centimeter. It was one of those molecular level offsides. So like, uh, don't, don't mistake what I'm saying as Lester got lucky or anything like that. The right team won. Um, but in a different day, in a different parallel universe, like, Chelsea could have grinded this out, gotten a point, and we'd be sitting here saying like, well, this is what you got to do sometimes when you're not at your best. You find a way and, and good for Chelsea on doing it today. But yeah, it's, it's you know, sometimes those margins are break the other way. Maybe that parallel universe was at Craven Cottage at the weekend where they they somehow through Mason Mount's relentlessness and, 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 and quality finishing got a win against Fulham that if Anthony Robinson hadn't been sent off in, that game, was, that, that game was going another way. That wasn't good either. Yeah. Like I had a, you, you had, I had some Chelsea fans, you know, doing trying to do a victory laps on me because they bet Fulham one nil at the cottage, like in a performance that was like <laughs> up a man for a half. Yeah, up a man for a half, <laughs> turgid, like yeah. unbelievable. Now most Chelsea fans, most of them that you speak to, have uh, the writings on the wall for this manager, and they yeah. know it. Yeah, before we get to him, like I said, this was this first part was supposed to be more about Leicester, but you can't help but I, I know, and, and Leicester, train wreck. Leicester were really good. By the way, Madison's let's talk about Madison's goal. All Brighton's pass is uh, it's it's not perfect, but it's it's a it's a pretty prescient pass as it turns out, where he just kind of clips one in. Rudiger and Vardy go for it. Rudiger, I mean, just I he don't judged it. Oh, really. completely the flight of it. Uh, Reese James is nowhere, absolutely nowhere, yeah. and um, and Madison just side foots home with such a plum. And um, and if you want to know about the confidence of Leicester City right now, you listen to Madison's post match uh, comments, which were greeted with universal appra- uh, 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 praise and and love. This guy is the kind of guy we need to hear about. He's so bubbly. He's cocky, but not too cocky. He's uh, you know. He's a little whelk. He's a nice guy. You, you, you want to hear from him. He's uh, he's bubbly. He's effervescent. Yeah. And Leicester City, their ability to retool seemingly on the fly, uh, it's it's truly admirable. I mean, this was a quality that we used to talk about and still do talk about to a certain extent with Southampton. 
you know, they would lose an incredible number of key players and seem to not be affected by it the following year. I mean, that is Leicester now, but but on steroids. Uh, you know, and, and it was, I guess, never more prescient than in a game like this when Ben Showell is on the other side with Chelsea. And like, have Leicester felt that loss at all? You know, James Justin is in and he's like, there's no drop off. You mentioned Castagna, hmm. Lafana. Like this team is just like, they just keep getting better and better. It doesn't seem to matter who they lose aside from Vardy and Madison. Like, you know, that was the problem last year. Those Madison got hurt. You know, the injuries last season really caught up with them and eventually it became too much for them to bear. At this point, they're healthy. And if they remain healthy, I see no reason why they don't remain at least near the top of the table. Yeah, I think they're. I, I, think they're I, good. I don't think they're in the championship race, but I think they're set for a really good good season. Yeah. Now uh, let's continue on the other side of this. the uh, The Lampard element. Where is the uh, the Lampard job security meter at right now? Are we at like I, I think we've got to be at just like total Michael Scott threat level midnight. Uh, threat level midnight. Threat level. Avram Grant. And Gus Hiddink being called simultaneously and fused into one super interim manager. Is there an, like an Avram Grant bat signal? Is he just like kind of uh, waiting for that to go up and, and he'll swoop in and save the day? I think he's good friends with Roman. It can be just as simple as a text message, Andrew. Oh, oh. Um, and, and certainly good Gus Hiddink has been on speed dial for the best part of, of uh, 15 years. Um, no, it's it's it's. I feel like it's done. There was even uh, more reporting, which was acknowledged by the NBC uh, cast of um, at halftime. I think it was at halftime where they were saying that the athletic was again saying this is, this is pretty much moving minutes to midnight for Frank Lampard. But Andrew, it's, I mean, some of the things he's been saying lately, you know, he talks about this team as if they're, complete novices that have been brought in, that it's a transition period, you know, that he hasn't bought the best, one of the best young talents in German football that he hasn't bought the best ger- young ta- uh, young striker in German football, like that he hasn't bought Hakim Zayek with the CV he has from Ajax, you know, just total denial. And then afterwards, he kind of just went to the the usual kind of script that you get from him. Uh, the bare minimums are to run, to sprint, to cover ground, and too many of our players didn't do it. Um, he said on losing his job, it is not my decision. That is something that will always be there. Some things are always beyond your control. I can't answer it. So, you know, that was that was the usual from Lampard. Um, basically, similar to what we heard against Arsenal, uh, passing the blame onto the players, um, not willing to engage on, you know, he, he actually, he, he, he does this little thing, I've noticed, where he talks about, about tactics or he, he, I think he did it against Arsenal. He did it again yesterday where he quickly mentions that you can play any tactics you want, but if you don't have the basics, X, Y, or Z, then, you know, running, sprinting. Talked about character again. Um, this is a man, uh, he's just, it's over, Andrew. And I think I think he knows it's over. And um, he hasn't been able to put a shape on this team. You never know what Chelsea are trying to do. Not really. And, um, and, and that's where we are. Yeah, I, I think we were all willing to accept that you bring in this many new players, there is going to be a little bit of a transition period that comes along with that. But it can't look like this for this long. You know, ultimately, I'm, I'm guessing we don't know. I don't know if we know definitively, but like these are players that he presumably wanted. Well, we, we talked to Liam Toomey about this only two weeks ago. Um, and, and I asked that question. You know, I tried to make an excuse for Lampard. I tried to say, well, you know, were these players foisted upon him in some way? Maybe it's too much too soon. And he said, no, he was active in their signing. So if he was active in their signing, he had to be thinking of some kind of plan about how to get them in. 
Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's not good. One of the the another one of his quotes that stood out to me afterwards. He said, "We were beaten by the better team. They were sharper than us, ran more than us, and looked in form. We looked out of form. I'm worried about the slump from the form we were in to get so quickly into the form we're now. Five losses in eight isn't where we want to be. We were in a really good place in December, second in the league, and two points from the top. Maybe complacency set in. There's only one way out of it, which is hard work. It is clearly concerning." Ooh, yeah. I mean, he's got to know though. He's been around that club so much. He's been he's been part of managers getting fired. Mm-hmm. You no, know? he's spoken to Abramovich as part of a a senior council of Chelsea players in the past about when it's time to to move to move a, a manager on. So he has to know. Yeah, it's not good, uh, and it does. It's it feels like it, it could be in any any week now, maybe even any in any day now. Uh, type of situation for him at that club. Uh, while we're talking about Chelsea, like I mentioned at the start of the uh, the show today, um, GQ Magazine has their February edition out right now. It's currently up on newsstands. You can also find the the article uh, online. But uh, Ali Franklin Wallace has a feature up on Christian Pulisic. It is really, really interesting, a fascinating look at this guy who we've all come to know and love. Uh, and, and it kind of lets you in a little bit to learn a, a little more about what this guy is truly like and what he's all about. And uh, Ali from GQ uh, is kind enough to join us now and talk a little bit more about that. Ali, what's up, man? How are you? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining us. We've been fascinated by uh, by this piece just because, you know, Christian Pulisic is he's one of the great American athletes right now. You know, I'm not saying he's LeBron or Tom Brady. He hasn't been around quite as long, but we feel like we know our best athletes in our other sports particularly well. And he is our best athlete in this sport. And it feels like we don't know him quite as well. And so it's pieces like this that kind of give us a glimpse into what Christian Pulisic is all about. And I'm just curious for like the genesis of how this story happened. I mean, what made Christian Pulisic an appealing topic for you? Sure. Um, I, actually, it, um, the idea came from my editor, Ben at GQ. Um, there was a brief period in the, uh, I guess, post-lockdown uh, period at, at the end of last season where Christian came back um, after the uh, after, after the COVID lockdown and, and he just had this scintillating run of form and people were talking about him as being one of the best players in the Premier League all of a sudden. And I guess that came towards the end of his first season at Chelsea. Um, obviously, by then, he'd, he'd made this record move. And I think there was that sense that, um, yes, yeah, soccer players in America don't, often get those crossover pieces gq does a lot of sports writing but it doesn't particularly cover it doesn't cover soccer very often um and it felt like there was this opportunity to i guess get to know him a little bit better now that he had i, I guess made that step up onto the global stage and to a premier league club and and i guess becoming the talismanic player for that team so i think one of the best parts of the of the piece is that um this kind of quiet um, he's almost embarrassed when he does interviews, kind of not really into the whole publicity thing. You seem to get a fair amount out of him. What what kind of person is he? Yeah, I mean, um, so we, I think, probably had three conversations. I went to his house um, in October. Um, it was the night after a Champions League game. Um, and, and, and I think, the, you know, the piece kind of reflects the fact he was a bit kind of tired and bruised. Uh, at that, but Christian's always been. I think if you followed his career, as I know you guys have, um, he's always been a very quiet, reserved guy. He's very private. He's very honest and open about that. Um, he doesn't do a huge number of 
um, I guess, deep profiles where people spend a lot of time together and, and I guess talk about much more than the game at hand or, you know, I, I, I guess um, what's going on with the team at that specific moment in time. Um, so it was great to just get a little bit inside his head, think about the way, to talk about the way that he's kind of experienced his rise, I guess, coming onto the, the world stage at 17 and coming up to being um, the key player for the US national team, being a key player for Chelsea, get a bit of an understanding about how he sees the game and how he sees, and I, and I think a, a big theme of the piece is really how he's dealt with those expectations and, and the massive, I guess, responsibilities put on his shoulders at such a young age, because, you know, this is a guy still only, what, 22? Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a great conversation, a series of conversations. He's a, he's a great guy. Yeah, one thing that's interesting to me, you talk about how he's, he's a private person, how he doesn't do very many interviews. And this interview in particular struck me as an interesting one for him to do, not only because he's, he's giving an interview, but you know, it's also accompanied by a fairly elaborate stylistic photo shoot, a side of, <laughs> of him that we don't typically see. And I'm, I guess I'm just wondering, was it difficult to get him to agree to do this? Um, no, actually not really. I think, um, I think one of the great things about Christian is that even though he um, is a private person, I think he's at a stage in his career where he recognizes, um, he recognizes that as, as a limitation. And, and he, I think he's, he recognizes that the great star players who want to be ambassadors for the sport. And I think that's something that he is, is trying to be. You know, he recognizes he has this opportunity to raise the profile of American soccer um, and, I guess, be out there and share his views on the world stage. And even though it's kind of, a, I guess, a little bit antithetical to the way that he's kind of operated in the past, he's obviously making the effort to try and do that a bit more. Um, so, you know, I think anyone can see from the photo shoot that he was, um, he was game. He was um, pretty open with his time, um, as were his team and, and his, his camp and his former teammates and things. So... Uh, yeah, there was, if it was, he, he was on board. It was great. There's a subculture here in, in the United States that's emerged in the Twitter sphere and on social media, Instagram as well, about tracking young American players, where these sure. guys who are supporters are not necessarily journalists, and they are absolutely obsessed with everything that, that happens because there seems to be this wave of new U.S. soccer players coming through in Europe. And they will be delighted with your description of his apartment and the way he lives. Actually, will they be delighted? They'll be fascinated. That's a better way to put it. Um, as an interviewer, when you saw where he lived, what did you make of it? What, 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 what sense did you get of his life? Looking uh, um, well, it's, it's an interesting time to be writing um, these kind of pieces with any kind of uh, celebrity any, and, and any kind of sports star, because I think... The pandemic, in a lot of ways, has been the great leveler for everyone. You know, they're stuck at home, bored most of the time, like we are. It's been a really surreal time in the stadium. Uh, the bubbles and the testing, similar situation with the NBA and the NFL, I guess, stateside. Um, so it's actually been a great time to be doing these kind of pieces because I think people are in a bit of, of an introspective mood. People have had, had a bit more time with their own thoughts, and so maybe they're mm. a bit more open about that than they, they might have been. Um, his place, I mean, I think I describe it a bit in the piece, it's fairly, it's, it's a very lovely, massive London mansion, as you'd expect from someone on Chelsea wages. Um, but the thing that, that kind of struck me about it, which again is in the piece, um, is I guess how empty it was, how there's not very much there, there's not very much personality there. But then again, 
you know, he's a 22 year old single guy. I don't think maybe that's probably a reflection of, you know, what an ordinary 20, an ordinary guy would be doing at that stage in his life. You know, he's into his games consoles and go to the gym and, you know, the, the thing any ordinary 22-year-old would be up to is just he happens to be changed Champions League for his job during the week, you know. And he's, he's kind of into God, kind of. <laughs> um, to be honest, we, I, 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 think, I think his faith is something that we talked about a little bit. Um, he hasn't really spoken to, about it very much in the past, but I think it is obviously very important to him and how he was raised. Um, he came from, a, a, I guess, a fairly traditional middle-class upbringing in, in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Uh, we talked quite a lot about that. Um, you know, we talked about the, the role of his grandfather who came over from Croatia, who actually sadly passed away over Christmas between the story going to print um, and it coming out. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously been a tough year for him in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, I, 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 think, I think a lot of people have been thinking about that kind of stuff at this strange time when there's so much going on in the world. So it was nice for him to um, feel comfortable enough to share that, I guess. Ali Franklin Wallace of GQ, the author of the piece on Christian Pulisic. In the February edition of GQ, it's on newsstands now, joining us here talking about Christian Pulisic. And um, Ali, one of the lines from the, uh, the feature that stood out to me, uh, he's talking about playing during the pandemic. And he says, it's not as enjoyable, uh, enjoyable to play with no fans. But he says, in a way, I like it because I don't really like attention and all that stuff. And that's also when I probably have grown the most as a player. Um, that's quite a statement, one that we don't usually hear from superstar athletes who kind of love the limelight. I'm curious if, if that comment from him kind of caught you off guard a little bit, like I think it did a lot of the, the readers of this. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was great to, to have him be so honest about that because I think Christian would be okay with me, with me saying that he's someone who's actively avoided the limelight wherever possible, which has been very difficult for him. I mean, he talks, we talked a little bit about in the interview about how intense it was for him to move to Germany, move to Germany, um, to Dortmund at 17 and, and kind of grow up in that environment where you have to grow up incredibly quickly um, he was thrust onto the world stage very quickly and had a huge amount of expectation put on him. I mean, we talk a little bit about his experiences during the last World Cup qualifying campaign and, and kind of the kickings he was getting in CONCACAF and the, the expectations um, that were put on him at a very young age. And, and I think his, he's obviously gotten a, had, had a negative experience of that. And I think coming to Chelsea, there was a, a sudden expectation, I think particularly because he was the only player signed in that window that he would step into Ed and Hazard's shoes, which are big shoes to fill straight away. Um, so not having that pressure, and I guess coming back from the pandemic, as obviously when we saw it last season, he was pro probably for the period of about 10 games, he, he was certainly up there as one of the most informed players in the Premier League. Um, we could talk a little bit about about the challenges that, that Chelsea is going through this season now, but I think most people who are watching can see that he's... Um, I guess coming back from that injury, but is playing at an incredibly high level and probably some of the best soccer of his career still. So, um, yes, it was uh, it was interesting to hear him be honest about how he sees his progression during this weird time for everyone. A final one for me, Ali. And as much as you can deduce from a guy you've just met for three conversations, <laughs> and again, this is a very um, kind of uh, maternal and paternal question to ask, but we care over here deeply about his success. Our happiness goes as his goes. Is he happy? Would you say? Is he? Does he seem like a happy guy to you? Um, I mean, it's not for me to say, to be honest. Uh, no. I, I think I think we we were talking. It's 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 a funny piece. I mean, a, a couple of people have commented to me that it's it's quite 
an unusually an unusual piece in the sense that um, we had it at a time when he was obviously struggling with a series of injuries which have kind of dominated the last year um, of his career in the middle of a pandemic. So I guess that affects, the, I, I guess, the, the tone. Mm. Uh, I would say, I, I'd say certainly when, from what I see from him on the training ground and from uh, from his life, he seems perfectly happy. I think naturally there's probably going to be a bit of a home, uh, of home, homesickness that a lot of people have had over the last year. Um, I think he'll be happier when Chelsea are playing better, um, which, which they're obviously struggling a little bit at the moment. Um, but you know, seeing him start off the left hand side and seeing him kind of getting in the starting lineup regularly will, I, I think, probably be making him happier than he was uh, sitting on the sidelines or sitting in the physio room. Certainly, so um, yeah, fingers crossed, <laughs> fingers crossed for him that he he can kind of stay fit and um, keep improving. It's funny because I feel like some of the, these questions that we ask you, it's as though we're talking to Christian Pulisic's therapist as opposed to his, as opposed to somebody who wrote a feature on him. But I, I guess I kind of have a sort of a follow-up to the one that JJ asked. And I'm just curious, like, and it all comes from the fact that I guess, like I said at the top of this, that we don't know him as well as sometimes we wish we did. Um, and, and I'm curious when he seems most comfortable to you. Like when you're asking him questions about his family, does he light up in a, in a different way as opposed to when he's talking about uh, his U.S. teammates or his Chelsea teammates? Or is he simply just most comfortable when he's on the pitch playing? Oh, he's definitely when he's on the pitch playing. He is most comfortable as soon as I'm leaving the room, definitely. <laughs> I think, uh, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> and I think that's probably, I think that's totally fair for, uh, you know, a young guy to have a, 30-year-old uh, journalist kind of wandering into the room and kind of prodding him about his private life. I don't, I don't blame him for being a bit shy in, in that moment. And it's, I think it's, I think sometimes uh, we forget that that's probably the norm for most people. I think sometimes when you see the gregariousness of an athlete like, you know, LeBron or some of the stars in the NBA or someone like um, Patrick Mayhomes or someone like that, you people people think that that's the, the standard. But I think there are actually a lot of athletes out there who just want to perform and, and perform on the pitch. So maybe that's not atypical. Uh, I think the thing that's unusual for Christian is that he happens to be so good on the pitch that everyone wants to know what he's thinking. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's, he, I think he recognises that um, he, I guess, has a responsibility now to, to, to open up and to talk to his fans and that, that's something that fans want. And I think he's making the effort to do that. And this is, I suppose, one of the first steps on that journey. But I think we'll see him taking on more and more responsibility um, as he gets older and kind of settles into that career. He's still a really young player. Yeah, he is. It's funny because we feel like, you know, we've seen him for five years, almost, almost six years, and, you know, he, but he is still just 22. I guess the last one for me, you know, uh, in it, you guys talk a little bit about the weight of expectations, not just from Chelsea, but from the United States, from his own family and his life. Uh, does he strike you as somebody who is, who's up for that, who, who can kind of shoulder the weight of expectations coming at him from all different angles? Definitely. I think, I think he said to me in the piece, um, something like, you know, the, the, the greatest expectations are his own. And no, he, I think he, he said something like, I want to be the player that everyone else wants me to be. Um, it's, it's very clear to me that he, his ceiling is incredibly high. Um, Greg Berhalter, the US men's national team coach, said something interesting to me, to me which is that you know, we've, we have got this golden age of American players um, coming up in Europe now. Um, whether it's McKenney or Gio Reyna or, uh, you know, there's a whole number of players in the Bundesliga doing well, that the um, the focus, the onus will be, will be less on Christian when it comes to the next World Cup qualifying campaign. So I think that will make a big difference to to his performances on the pitch. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, I, I think the sky's the limit for his, um, for his potential. It just needs to be 
you know, he needs to be happy and playing in a system where he feels like he's um, been appreciated. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see if that's the case going forward. Uh, I said that was my last one. I, I do have one more actually kind of <laughs> along the lines of that. Uh, you know, that. That's one thing with the weight of expectations. The other thing you talk about that was interesting in this piece to me, just kind of getting a sense of his personality was leadership. Uh, he, mm. he is the more quiet type. And when we look at the U.S. team, Specifically, you know, Weston McKinney is kind of more of that, like you said, gregarious, uh, outgoing figure. But Christian talked in the piece about kind of wanting to be a leader. Is that something that you can see him handling? I think so. I think you see that even now with the this younger crop of players coming into the men's national team um, in, the, in the most recent call-ups. Um, there was a pe- period, um, I, I'm not, I can't remember if it's in the piece or not, but even when he was injured, he went down to the um national team camp in in swansea in the autumn uh he knows and and i guess the whole team set up there knows that i guess he is probably the outstanding player on that team i mean weston is is playing incredibly well but they they look to him as the creative leader on the pitch the one who's going to kind of change the game um and i think he's stepping up to that you can see that with with the chelsea team um has changed a lot this season i think last season he was coming into that setup as a new player, as an American, that was a fairly unknown quantity. I think now that they've seen the best of him and they've got, like, what, five or six new start, new players in the starting lineup, some fairly young players like Kai Havertz and things, um, you can see that Christian's kind of settling into that on the pitch. I, I watched them play Leicester last night and unfortunately uh, they lost. But it was interesting to me seeing how much more outspoken he, he looks on the pitch compared to, you know, watching him 18 months ago. So I think we're starting to see that maturity come through. Um, you know, on the pitch and off it. Good stuff, man. Ollie Franklin Wallace, uh, this piece on Christian Pulisic, it was fascinating. Uh, We loved it. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. You can check it out. It's in the February edition of GQ Magazine, uh, which is currently on newsstands right now. Good stuff, man. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Great stuff, man. I mean, that he's Pulisic is just such an interesting figure to me. And I'll say this in, in learning a little bit more about him. It's, I I know it's probably not fair to say he's like a, a, a soccer robot, but he does seem, you know, in Ali talking about, you know, he's, he's clearly most comfortable when he's playing. Um, you know, he's, he's not somebody who loves the limelight necessarily, but is trying to grow into that a little bit more. It sounds like this guy is just, I want to play soccer. I love it. That's what I do. Uh, all this other stuff that comes along with it. All right, cool, whatever. But I'm about the game. And, you know, I, maybe it's, Someone like that is a little bit harder for the fans to get to know, but ultimately it's not, it's not about how well we know him. You know, we, we want to see him perform well. And um, his focus is clearly, it seems to me at least to be kind of single-minded, just like I want to be the best possible player that I can be and whatever the other stuff is, you know, whatever, that's, that's not really what I'm about. Yeah. Nothing from uh, his interviews since he started playing would suggest that he treats the media with anything other than, kind of i suppose curiosity not curiosity that's not the word um he looks not he doesn't look at them askance but he's he seems to be wary of them mildly irritated by questions and slightly embarrassed that's the whole mix you get with Pulisic. i mean even after he scored the hat trick against uh, burnley which really kind of kick-started his his chelsea career last season he di- he didn't seem like he wanted to be there very long or involved in a, in the conversation about himself very long. So I, I guess it's good to get some kind of insight into the life he leads. And yeah, I mean, know. it's just that's just not like some guy's personality is just you know that's not what they are interested in. Like a lot of people, you know, can can get like there are guys who have that superstar quality to them, 
where they're great players and they happen to be these, like we talked about, gregarious, larger-than-life figures. But there are some guys who just love the game. And it just so happens that like choosing that as their profession, like, oh, by the way, you have all these other responsibilities that you have to now worry about that, that like media advertisements, stuff like that. That's not why a lot of these guys got into the game. They weren't interested in the fame. They just loved playing. Yeah. And I think he, to me kind of resembles that. I, yeah. I think right, he's an interesting contrast um, when you read that interview and then you see James Madison, as I mentioned before for Leicester city, and the way he kind of charmed people with his with his bubbly character. And then even Paul Pogba tonight after Manchester United and Fulham, which, which we'll get to. Um, I, I found Pogba incredibly interesting, but he seemed happy to talk about the game and also love the game. I guess Pulisic is just not that way. So uh, good stuff. Like we said, Ali Franklin Wallace, GQ magazine. It, it's up now. You can find it online or you can find it at, at newsstands, wherever it is that uh, that you want to track it down. It's, it's worth the read for sure. Uh, you mentioned Paul Pogba. Let's talk a little bit about Manchester United. I don't know if you want to go into their win against Fulham today or if you want to at least take a little bit of a look back, JJ, at what was, what was dubbed as the game of the year before it happened, afterwards. Uh, the Liverpool United game didn't didn't quite live up to that, but it's still probably worth mentioning uh, the the biggest game of the season. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the way me and you were talking last week, we were talking like this fixture always produces the goods, and we were planning a podcast on Monday around it when it never does. <laughs> right, it's never yeah. very good, and um, it wasn't very good at the weekend either. It's been a very good week for Manchester United on the whole to get a point at Anfield. Um, although they could possibly have taken all three, but still take the point at Anfield, right? And move on and then beat Fulham and put yourself top of the table. Um, after City had beaten Aston Villa just a just a a couple hours earlier. So, you know, very good, very good week for Manchester United. Um, the game at the weekend wasn't very good. Um and Liverpool probably come out feeling, you know feeling the worst of it because we didn't see them snap into gear again. Mm-hmm. They've gone three games without a goal, um, which is, I think, the first time that's happened at Liverpool for Klopp. Well, it's just uh, jarring specifically because like, you think about what happened right before this run of form. They beat Palace 7-0. Yeah, yeah. And that was right on the heels of them having just beaten Tottenham to distance themselves at the top of the table. They followed that up with a 7-0. And you just think, like, I remember the podcast we did after that the thought process was a little bit of here we go again. Like even without Van Dyke, it's going to be Liverpool and then everyone else can battle for second. And since then they've scored two goals in four games, three draws and a loss. It's like, I don't know. I don't care who you are, how prescient or, you know, you you think you might be. I don't think anyone saw this coming. No. um, I, I thought they played, you know, really well against Crystal Palace, but not, I still, I still saw, you know, a, a, a few issues with them that haven't really gone away all season. And, you know, I just think the whole, the first thing for me is I'm not going to make excuses about the injuries. I do think the injuries are key to to the problem here, but I also think the speed of play, Andrew, I, I keep banging on about that. How quickly can you get that ball moving? How quickly can you move defenders out of the way? Now, United were parked in a block for most of the, the game on Sunday. They grew into it a bit in the second half for sure, but, you know, they were they were compact, they were central, and Liverpool really couldn't find a way through them or indeed around them. And um, it seemed like a lot of games before, a lot of the play was similar. Um, I wonder how much the idea that we, you know, 
we don't have Virgil van Dijk. We don't have even Joe Gomez. We don't have anyone to launch, you know, long attacks early to do things quickly. Like I said, to increase the speed of play, to make Liverpool difficult to play against. And United, for their part, were probably right. They may be a bit disappointed that against this kind of wounded Liverpool that they didn't do more. Solskjaer said that after the game. But honestly, that would have been playing into their hands. If you had Thiago on the ball in midfield and United playing much, much further, like 10, 15, 20 yards up the field to find spaces in behind, I think that would have been the kind of thing that would reju- re- would have rejuvenated Liverpool. Um, yeah, just just a bit, just, just flat still, Andrew. And... Um, and struggling, really struggling. And you wonder if FSG are going to say, right, we're going to target a centre-back now, find out someone that we can get in so we can push one of our, our midfielders back or, or to both of our midfielders if Matip gets fit back into uh, into the, the positions that they play in and try and, and get this thing going again. Um, otherwise, uh, I mean, if they keep playing like this, they're going to be out of it. Uh, yeah, that's that's hard to imagine, but I suppose that is true. Jurgen Klopp uh, responded to this idea that Liverpool need to rebuild. And, and here was his quote. I'm curious what you make of this. He said, the world is a crazy place now, and not just because of the pandemic. No one has time anymore. In football, we know that. I've been in football long enough to know that you never really get time. After last season, we didn't make steps forward. Uh, we know that, and we want to change that, but we have to change that by playing, not by talking. What does he mean there? I'm trying to decipher that. So we we didn't make steps forward. You would think that that was like. Is he talking about personnel? Yeah, I mean that was sort of how I took it. I mean they they went out and and got Jota and uh, Tiago. They those had not, Minamino from the middle of last season. He yeah, those, he those never plays not, them. Those are not small signings. Now in in the back maybe, but like who. Who thought that they needed to like, be boosted in the back between their fullbacks and Van Dyke? I, like, <laughs> I think the arg- the argument really, if we're going down the personnel road, and you you said it to me a lot last season, and I agreed with you. It's like, how long can Liverpool go with no stretch of serious injury? You know, with little niggles here, but but they've been able to replenish and and fit Milner in somewhere or move it around a bit or, you know, we lose Fabinho, but we'll slide Henderson in there. And then they get a whole whole host of, of injuries pretty much all at the same time. Um, and it, it, it just, it, it's just knocked them for six, really. It's not all injuries, certainly. I don't think it is, but it is a huge part of it. If you're it playing, is. It, it is a huge part playing, of it. If, but... you're, if you're playing centre midfielders at centre back, there's... There, I mean, there's going to be like the midfielders in front of you are straight away going to be a bit unnerved by this. They're going to think, well, I'm going to have to focus on defending and helping them out a little bit more. And that's going to pull the team back a little bit further. Um, but the snap and the energy isn't quite there, Andrew, as well. Yeah. And look, I mean, uh, the of course, the injuries are part of it. I, I would never deny that they're missing key players and they now have to play players out of position. But like I, I'm looking up front and I'm still seeing... Sala, Firmino, Mane, and we're talking about three straight games of zero goals or whatever it is, two goals in their last four games total. Like I'm watching Firmino's performance over the weekend and I'm just like, this, what's wrong wrong with him? He looks terrible. He's missing wide open players out on the wing. Like, you know, Robertson, how many times does Andy Robertson have to make that run on the left by himself before Firmino finally picks him out? It's just, you know, things like that to me, it's not just injuries. It's also form. Some of these guys are just not playing well right now. Yeah. And I think some of these guys are playing a lot. Some of these guys are playing an awful lot and have been doing so um, for a while. 
I don't know. Um, I think it's a whole mixture of things. I think every point we've made up there is probably valid. Um, but, but like I said, it's, it's, it, they've got to find, find a way to ignite this thing again, whether it's the cup game against United coming up, whether it's, um, resting players for, for, for a game or, or just do something or whether it's bringing in what they probably don't want to do considering the financial situation right now in world football, go out and get a center back and try and, and free up that midfield again. I don't know. But we better talk about Manchester United or we'll be in trouble. Well, yeah, I, I don't have a ton on them. They're they're obviously you know happy with where things are at right now. It's just interesting, though, uh, against Fulham today, another game where they start slow and they're made to pay for it. But in the end, they're never made to pay for it. Uh, it's interesting that this team just they fall behind so consistently. And yet they have this fight in them where they don't get down. They you know, they they seem to always rebound from it. Uh, from it. I'm reading here from James Ollie's piece at ESPN FC today, and he writes, it was the seventh time they had fallen behind on the road this season, and having won their previous six, there was no sense of panic. That's incredible. Can that yeah. is that sustainable? Um, maybe not, but I don't think any. I don't think there will be long sustainable runs this season. Although they're on one. Wait, wait, you hear this? So, um, Steve Bartram, who works uh, for Manchester United. Um, Andy Minton retweeted this. 17 unbeaten away league games for Man United, equaling the all-time club record set December 1998 to September 1999. Better points returned from the current run too. They have 13 wins. They've drawn four. 438 against 14. 43 points as opposed to 35 from that team. And don't forget that traverses the treble season. Uh. Solskjaer has done it again, JJ. He has once again pulled the rabbit out of the hat, and he's he's it now. Like yep, I, I think no. we have to stop. Ooh. We have to stop the conversation about him being out as manager. There what, are th- what, what does he have to do? There are things that are it. Um, I think Fred's energy in the midfield that is a part of it. I think Paul Pogba uh, coming into form and uh, playing for a contract somewhere else possibly is part of it. But their record since Bruno Fernandes came in to this club is absolutely it. I mean, I think... No, no, no. When I say he's it now, I'm not saying he's the reason this is happening. I mean, he's the manager. Like, we, I think we just have to table the discussions of Oli out. Well, um, yeah, I would think so at this juncture. It would make, of course. It would, it would make sense. But um, in fairness to Ed Woodward, he's been ahead of the curve on that. I mean, that's that's if we're to believe what's been reported, that would, it's never been even even after the the embarrassing Champions League exit that it, this has not been in question. Right. Not at the hierarchy. Um, but but to go back to Bruno Fernandes, United have uh, eclipsed most teams. I think all teams, in fact, um, maybe. I may have to check my stats, but I think they have more points in that stretch since Fernandez arrived than Liverpool do. Um, he's been huge, and like we said, he needed to be when he was bought. Remember they had. Remember we we saw this long pursuit, and at one point we didn't think it had happened, and and they got it over the line. Andrew, he links everything together in that attack, which I still say is very off the cuff, which I still say is not as coordinated as other teams, but which is still getting the job done right now. I'd also I'd also say that. Um, Edinson Cavani has been a, a brilliant signing. He should have started against Liverpool, but but Solskjaer clearly thought he would need him for the full 90 
or almost the full 90 against Fulham tonight. And he was brilliant tonight, Andrew. The running he did, his energy, just outstanding. I think he's he's one of these guys who just is positionally a genius. I feel like he's just he always seems to find himself in the right places at the right times, reading angles, reading how a play is going to develop, and that was pretty much how he got his goal today. Look, Ariola was not, you know, he he was at blame for that equalizer, but Cavani's got to be there, and he he didn't wait. He slammed that ball home. Uh, he had the header that was saved well by Ariola in the second half, and then to round it off, really, it was that bit of genius from from Paul Pogba. You know, the kind of thing I guess we expect to see more of uh, where he takes on two players, comes in and just bends it with his left foot. Um, Beautiful goal. So United are trucking right now and um, the confidence is up. The buzz is up. It's been a a very good week for them. If there were fans that were disappointed with maybe the way they went about things at Anfield, think four points from your last two games that included a trip to Anfield to the Champions. I think United fans are going to be absolutely very happy with that on top of the table as well. But there's another half of Manchester, Andrew, yeah, let's talk. Yeah, let's like touch the on walk that. Of the White Walkers, they cannot be put down. The march of the the march of the dead. <laughs> uh, it's Manchester City, although they seem very much alive right now. Two uh, 0 over Aston Villa earlier today. I, I do want to say one thing. First off, I thought this game was tremendously exciting and entertaining. Yeah, um, ch- good chances for both sides. Uh, really a, an enjoyable game. And in a losing re- effort, I'd like to submit uh, Bertrand Traore for possibly having the the best first touch of the year um, on a ball. What was it, the 52nd minute or so on yes. just like a long ball with a defender on him that he just like cushioned beautifully and sort of like then bounced it up over the defender and was able to get a shot on target. It was He didn't score, but I was just like in awe of the moment. Uh, but in the end, it is City scoring twice fairly late on in this one. And you... You would just wonder now, like you, you look at the betting odds and it's got them as the favorites. Um, I'm, looking though, at like, the, I'm looking at uh, 538, Andrew, which is, it's got them to um, to win the Premier League 76% uh, with... That is win- a, that's an enormously high number. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. And, um, but you can kind of feel it a little bit. Well, it's just, I guess so, but it's its just so interesting because you look at them and you're kind of like, okay, well, like who's who's leading the way? Obviously, De Bruyne is, is still fantastic, but like I don't think Raheem Sterling has had a great season. Um, obviously, up front between Aguero, Jesus, there have been question marks there all season long. Yes. Um, you know, so it's just interesting that some of the usual suspects have not necessarily been those guys to be like a huge part of this surge. But but I would say if if okay fine, but I I would argue that you know the reemergence the Stones Renaissance John Stones and Diash at the back how good they've been mm-hmm. in kind of shoring things up. Um Villa had their chances today. Villa were decent today. They they put up a big a big fight, but this was this was peak Man City at times Andrew. There was no doubt who deserved to win the game overall, although controversial was the first goal, which kind of um, incensed Dean Smith and got him sent to the stands. What did you uh, think about it? Oh, God. It, it's one of those uh, where I, I just think it's terrible. So Tyrone Mings is uh, about about to control a ball. Um, it's a long ball. headed. I think it was kicked or headed back towards the Aston Villa centre-back. And Rodri is returning from an offside position. And steals it um, after Ming's chests it. Um, 
plays it to Bernardo Silva, who scores a, a fantastic goal. And it's um, it's basically, it's the conflict, really. Um, again, I think Dale Johnson put, put it best. He said, this is the intricacy to the offside law. Remember that the VAR will apply the laws of the game and not common sense. When Mings chests it, Rodri is two yards away and not challenging for the ball. Therefore, by the laws of the game, that offside is reset. Dale believes that that he d- he disagrees with that idea. And I and I uh, any fair-minded person, I thought that was dreadfully unfair. Like Dean Smith made the point: what are we going to have players lurking offside now? First first touch on a ball coming in, that offside is reset. It's just like this kind of loophole um, in the rules. And Dale goes on to say this, and he sums it up best for me. This is one of the overarching problems that VAR will, will have to overcome, as I've mentioned in the past. Referees, as the VAR feel, they must apply the laws of the game. Protocol says VAR should do what football expects, and they're not fully compatible, and it's an issue. And I felt bad for Villa. And by the letter of the law, they weren't wronged, but it felt like they were. Um, in terms of City and their title push, right now they're second in the table, uh, two points off of Manchester United. However, they have played one game fewer than Manchester United. I, I mean, do you have like that seventy six percent that that five thirty eight has, and the betting you know the betting markets kind of viewing them now as the favorite? Is that a fair reflection? You think on how most people feel about where they're at? Mm, how fans feel? Yeah, no, I think fans think this is much more open still. Um, there's a few people worried now that City are beginning to click that that you know first half of the season they were almost in a containment mode ready to go in and just drive at this thing until May Um, I think fans think there's a bit more left in this season there may well be there may well be but it 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 does have a little feel of Manchester City about it Andrew I can't I can't deny that Uh, let's see now you have a uh, I, I think you have a mailbag do you not a very, a very brief mailbag, Andrew, um, but some key issues uh, that we're going to address. Uh, Wayne Rooney retired mm, yes. in, the period of, in the period of time since the last podcast uh, beco- to become the full-time manager at Derby County. Uh, lots of our listeners chiming in with their favorite memories. Can you guess what probably the top memory of Wayne is? Uh, is, it, is it the bicycle kick against Man City? It is the bicycle kick against Man City, followed by... Um. Yeah, I would say pretty closely followed by his amazing crossfield pass for DC United. I mean, that would be my number two. I, I it's I feel silly almost having a, an MLS moment, but hat trick on his debut in his, on his Champions League debut against Fenerbahce. No, thumping a long ball for DC United. Stop. Don't be like that. All right. Don't be like that. That was not all that that was. Um, in the ninety fifth minute. You oh, got we're, not, Rooney. we're not. Go, we're not going over this again. We're no, but, but for you to just say, "Oh yeah, Rooney lumps a long ball," and that's the second best moment. Come on, man. Be fair. That's not what happened. I, I, I think uh, no. I, I think it was very good, but I, I, it wouldn't. I don't think it'd make. It, it might make my top five. Actually, I take that back. But, but generally, the debate um, that kept popping up on Twitter was Andrew: Was this career, considering the the splash he made as a sixteen year old? Was this career everything we thought it would be? I say yes. And I know that he had an expectation that I think was always going to be difficult to meet. But I mean, 
how how much did how much does he does someone need to win? How many goals does someone need to score to to validate their promise? I mean, with Manchester United, what, what did he win? He won a Champions League. He won how many league titles while he was there? Was it? He like won five league five? titles, the Champions League, an FA Cup. Um, he's he's what England's all time leading goal scorer. Yeah, he eclipsed <laughs> Sir Bobby Charlton. Um, I mean, I know that he's defined by some of his negative moments, like the red card in the World Cup. Uh, but you know, maybe he didn't experience the success with England. Although, I, like I just, he's England's all time leading goal scorer. I feel like that 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 has to mean something. He has, uh, the, but, he, he has the Europa League. He has a um, he has a FIFA World Club Cup winner's medal. He is four of the uh, Carabao English League Cups, the Carling Cups, whatever they were called at the time. I think the international career, Andrew, does taint these things because after 2004, the European Championships, where he kind of burst onto the scene and was really good until he got injured, every tournament after that was some kind of disaster for him. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the worst was in, in South Africa in 2010, where you know this was a guy who was in his peak I think 09-10 for United was probably his best season. Um, And so he goes to that World Cup. I know England are bad, but he's particularly bad because he's been talked about being in this upper echelon of, of great players. And, oh, just, just so terrible, if you remember it. Yeah, no, I do. Um, but is, is that enough to like stain a pretty, you know, I, I would say a legendary career? Um, I mean, is it because I, like, is it, you know, if you're listing your greatest strikers in the Premier League era, how far down do you have to go before you get to him? I, I mean, what are we talking? We're talking well, a, a group of, goal. we're talking a group of, of what? Henri? Uh, Kane, Aguero, Shearer. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. I'm not listing these in order. I'm just saying, like, this is this is the group that Rooney is a part of. Um, so I don't know to have won that much to be in that category of greatest strikers of the Premier League era. Whether or not he's number one or number five, I, I don't know. We can debate that another time. But he's in that group. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm, I guess I'm just not totally sure other than the international success if that's if that's the gap that that's missing on the resume then okay i you know other than the fact that he scored a ton of goals for england in terms of the team success yeah i you can't really account for that but i think anyone who's looking at his career as as a i I know you didn't say disappointment you said whether or not it met expectations yeah whether it fulfilled exactly what people thought it would at the start, I, because, I guess everyone, I guess we'll have a different answer. I don't know what everybody's initial expectations were, but I just look at what he did for as as arguably the best or second best player on a United team that won a lot. Uh, I think it's hard for me to say that uh, that he in any way fell short. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think you're probably right. You're probably right in that. And uh, finally, just uh, Brian Baker wrote in to list all the big soccer he couldn't see because of TV paywalls. Um, it, it was a depressing list. I'm not going to read through all of it. Uh, I live in a market controlled by Comcast and satellite TV with no premium channels. I'm at $180 a month for TV and another 75 for internet access. Adding individual subscriptions for something that entire family won't use is a tough ask. After after half a year, how do you see this proceeding and what do you think the effect will be on soccer growth in the USA? In terms of how I see it proceeding, there is no turning back. 
it's uh, that's unfor- that's the unfortunate reality. I think this is this is now the way you know this is how it's going to be, and and it's it's a shame because I think it's going to hurt the popularity of the, of this sport, the growth of this sport in this country, because I think it's going to limit eyeballs that are going to be able to uh, to enjoy it, and that's uh, that's too bad. Yeah, I, I would say we need probably need a longer sample size to really see how it'll affect it. But I would be concerned too because when you just see the entry to the game is so often through TV and access to it, anything that can curb that is is just not good. But I, I'm kind of with you. I don't I don't see in the current climate um, TV companies going back from that. So no. not good. This is I think this is just how it is. I think so too. And uh, that's it for now, Andrew. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes, guys. We need to up our iTunes reviews um, by law, in fact. Have, have people been leaving? I know we, we told people to leave suggestions for uh, for what they've been watching. Um, oh, you I, know, have, I have not checked. I haven't checked because I, I, we did it last week, and sometimes the publishing of reviews takes a few days. Okay. So I, I, I will look at that tonight. And <laughs> All ho- right. hope, hopefully it's turned out well. Oh, let's, uh, let's bring it down the stretch now with a little bit of red... Hard. Can I go first, JJ? I will allow you to go first, Andrew, as I am typically just teeing up my content right now. Ah, so uh, this is actually an effective stalling technique. All right, my red card, JJ, is the uh, the Snodgrass omission. Kind of sounds like a Wes Anderson movie, doesn't it? It, it, well, it really does. <laughs> or a 1960s political uh, scandal in America. The Representative Snod- Snodgrass was found in a hotel with a big bag of cash, and we want to know what's happening. The Snodgrass omission. Uh, yeah, West Brom and West Ham are being investigated by the Premier League for Snodgrass's role in yesterday's game, Robert Snodgrass, or, or should I guess say his lack thereof uh, a role in yesterday's game. He was transferred from the Hammers to West Brom on January 8th. West Brom chose not to play him yesterday, which was a bit eyebrow-raising, Um, but any mystery around why he didn't play was quickly revealed and not through any sort of detective work, but rather through Sam Allardyce himself, who said after the game that Snodgrass's absence was due to, quote, an agreement between the clubs. Uh, He went on to say, we could only get the deal done with that agreement. There was an agreement between the clubs that in this game, he would not be allowed to play. Um, That is very much against league rules. Premier League rule I-7 listed in the, uh, the, this season's handbook says no club shall enter into a contract which enables any other party to that contract to acquire the ability to materially influence its policies or the performance of its teams in league matches. That is pretty much exactly what happened here. I know we crave honesty from our sports figures, but this is, this is too much. Um, So is this now just like an open and shut case? Uh, I would think that like, it's all been made pretty easy in terms of an investigation. Now, the only thing on West Brom and West Ham's side here is that precedent might be in their favor. In 2007, a very similar thing happened involving Everton goalkeeper Tim Howard against his former club, Manchester United. It was revealed that he did not play, and it was due to a gentleman's agreement made between the two clubs. Uh, however, despite saying that they wouldn't have sanctioned the transfer if they were aware of the stipulation, the Premier League ultimately said that neither club did anything wrong. Uh, by the way, a little odd that David Moyes has been involved in both of these scenarios. Um, what are you suggesting about the Moisenator? I, I don't know. I don't know if it's a coincidence or if this is just like one of his go-to moves in getting a deal done. I'm not sure be, exactly. Be, be careful. You're on shaky uh, legal ground there, my friend. Who, me? 
Yeah. I'm it's saying crazy. it's a coincidence that David Moyes has been involved in both of these, in, these instances. It's, I, would emphasize it's the word co- I would emphasize the word coincidence, okay? That's all I'm saying. I'm not no wheeler and dealer. What, who, oh, that was Redknapp, right? That was Harry Redknapp. Okay. Harry, you're a wheeler and dealer. Oh, I'm not a wheeler and dealer. Uh, oh, no, Harry, I, I didn't mean it like that. No, oh, Harry, Harry, no. <laughs> um, we need that drop back. I oh, know. my God, we need that. I know. But at any rate, I'm very curious what the punishment will be here, if any, just because, like I said, this seems like an open and shut case when the manager just comes right out and basically says that this was uh, an agreement made specifically to get the deal done. So uh, the Snodgrass emission coming to theaters this summer. (laughs) Political drama starring Harvey Cartel as Snodgrass. What do you have? Um, What have I? Uh, I've got soccer Twitter and Fernando Torres. I've just sent you a picture, Andrew. Uh, I've seen seen this, JJ. You've seen this already. Um, I want to uh, point out some of the brutality that has been foisted upon uh, Fernando Torres for staying in shape post-playing career. So he was was doing some kind of promotional thing for, I I don't even know what company it is. Um, But the photos emerged and he is looking rather buff, let's be honest. Yeah, he if looks like a bodybuilder. He looks enormous. It's his, like he's uh, almost unrecognizable. His traps. I mean, you could, you, you, could, you could build condos in his traps. You could sell real estate in his traps. They're so big. Um, and they did, of course, to emphasize the guns, they did the folding arm pick, mm. looking slightly broody and moody for whatever they were promoting. Um, and, and soccer Twitter didn't, they didn't say, hey, well done, Fernando. Looking after yourself in your post-playing career. You know, because he was waif-like. I wouldn't say waif's not correct. He was always athletic, but you would never say he was, he was jacked. You would say he, he had a lot of lean muscle. Um, but yeah, so, so I'm going to read you some of the choice uh, excerpts from soccer Twitter yesterday. Uh, our friend Aaron West, uh, <laughs> he hit a home run with this one. Why does Fernando Torres look like a former college linebacker working at Best Buy? So uh, the next uh, one was football, football, Joe. Why does Fernando Torres suddenly look like a personal trainer down your local gym telling you that if you pay for the first five sessions up front, he'll give you an extra one for free. I thought that are, was a good one. These are all uh, true. But my, but my favorite is Nick Miller. Uh, Fernando Torres is now the personal trainer at your local pure gym who never seems to do any training, just rearranges the weights and flirts with the spin instructor. (laughs) So you made this your red card and then you chose to read all the comments and laugh at them. Oh, I I read the tasteful ones, Andrew. Those are the tasteful ones. Yeah, um, he's he's bigger and I want to applaud his his workout regimen. Um, I want to know what it is. but yeah, well done to it, him. It, it was jarring. Not to, not to soccer Twitter. It, 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 did you have to look twice to check who it was? Uh, no, I mean, it was in like the, the caption right away. I saw who, uh, I read who it was and then I saw the picture. But I was like, no, I, really? Like he hasn't been out of the game that long where you would think his body could undergo a complete and total transformation. The way His that head's has. too small for that body as well. Yeah, it's like it's been superimposed on like a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger picture. His head hasn't aged a bit since the mid-2000s. His body has become Schwarzenegger. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, all right, man of the match. JJ, you had to know this was coming from me specifically. Jordan Morris, here we go. Here we go, my 
favorite MLS caterpillar is ready to blossom into a beautiful butterfly, JJ, as he heads to Europe for a lone spell with Swansea? Hmm? That's why, why are you going Swansea? They have because American ownership. <laughs> I know. I understand all that, and I will get to it. But on the surface, it was puzzling only because of some of the, the teams that he had been linked to. And I don't mean this as an offense to Swansea, but clubs that I think most people would say are, are bigger. Like um, whom? Well, Fiorentina and Bayer Leverkusen. Were Fiorentina, American owners. Okay. Bayer Leverkusen, I never heard that one. Well, read The Athletic. It was okay. all in there, my friend. Uh, but the championship, as you well know, is certainly no slouch of a league when it comes to showcasing talent. And Swansea specifically is no slouch of a club in that department. Now, I'm reading here from said article in The Athletic, from Stuart James's piece. It's very good. You should read it. Um, uh, he says, Mars is walking into an extremely positive environment and one that is geared towards not just achieving team success, but also improving individuals and giving them a platform to shine. That has been particularly appealing to Premier League clubs when it comes to loaning out their best young talents to Swansea, and it's easy to see why it might be attractive to Morris and Seattle too. After all, uh, half, uh, half a season tearing it up in the championship would do the power of good to Morris's profile outside of MLS and add a few million dollars to his price tag too. Now some examples, JJ, of how this has actually come to fruition. Um, you may, I mean, you'll certainly know this one. Um, the... This time last season, Ryan, uh, Ryan Brewster joined from Liverpool with only three first-team appearances to his name. Nine months and 11 championship goals for Swansea later. Brewster's being sold off to Sheffield United for $25 million amid interest from almost half the Premier League. And that Stuart James also goes on to say, indeed, since the end of their first season back in the championship in 1819, Swansea have sold Ollie McBurney to Sheffield United for 17 million, Daniel James to Manchester United for 15 million, Joe Rodon to Tottenham for an initial fee of 11 million. So the championship is no football wasteland and Swansea in particular. So I'm fascinated by this. I mean, you know what I think of Morris and you know that I've consistently said even with this rise of American talent playing in Europe, that I believe Morris has a place on this team and not necessarily as just some super sub. But with all that talent thriving in Europe, it feels like, I don't know, fair or not, it feels like he needs this to ensure his inclusion. So I hope that he succeeds there um, because I suppose it is a bit of a gamble, but I believe enough in this guy's skill where I think he can go there and thrive. And it will enhance his profile, not just internationally, but here nationally as well for the U.S. team. So uh, good luck, Jordan Mars. This should be uh, – I, I hope that this is a fun endeavor for him as he heads across the sea to Wales and Swansea. It's going to be interesting just from, from every angle, from just the, the sheer pace and, and uh, how would you say it, I suppose the physicality of the league, not just from – not that MLS isn't physical, but no, this is, is so – this is such a demanding schedule in the championship. It's, but don't you think he, like just looking at his body type and the way he plays, I feel like if anyone going over there could handle the physicality and that element of the game, I feel like it, it's him. I, I, I'm going to be fascinated by it. Perhaps he can. He'll be coming off firmer surfaces going into a, an English spring, or, or rather a Welsh spring, and uh, heavier fields, um, probably a lot more playing minutes. It's, it's going to be a huge challenge. But I think you're right. He's at the point where he probably needs to do this now. And it's a temporary loan also. So, you know, it's like yeah. one of those Landon Donovan loans with Everton back in the day. So we'll see, though. But if MLS's season is delayed, who knows? That could potentially increase his amount of time playing with Swansea. So, look, it's just good for him to be playing in Europe, even if it's only a short spell. And, um, you know, we'll see if it takes his career to even another level. Andrew, got? my man of the match is uh, Florian Wirtz. 
17 years of age, scored the winner for Bear Leverkusen against Borussia Dortmund last night. I believe this morning he had to go to school. He's already missed a Europa League match because of exams. Uh, Wirtz last season became the Bundesliga's youngest ever goal scorer. That record has since been eclipsed by uh, Mukuku of uh, Borussia Dortmund. Uh, but it must be said that the man of the match in this game was uh, Musa Diaby, who set the uh, Dortmund defence ablaze on more than one occasion. But, I mean, Wirtz is the story because he's just so young. And Andrew, like, his impact was, like, from the, minute, the first minute of that game, he gets the ball, I think it was the second minute, <laughs> gets the ball on the outside, curls it for the top corner, forces Roman Berkey into a save, and you're like, who is this kid? And, and like, genuinely, a total kid. I'm not talking about the kids we talk 21 and 22. Complete kids, still at school. Scores the winner, hits it early, just smashes it past Berkey. Just takes him by surprise. He takes the strike so early, wheels away. Unfortunately, no fans in the stadium. But, I mean, just an unbelievable performance. And as ESPN put the headline on, on YouTube, it was that Gio Reyna and Haaland are eclipsed by Diaby and Wirtz. Um, Serious performance and, and this conveyor belt out of Leverkusen. We've had Kai Havertz already as a young player. Now we've got Wirtz. Like German football, Leverkusen in particular, just absolutely ripe for these amazing players. Uh, Wunderkind, I believe, is the term, Andrew. And they have yet another one of them. Wow. Yeah. Pretty impressive. It, it's huge. And uh, uh, I suppose on the, on the Dortmund side of things, again, an, an opportunity. I mean, Leverkusen weren't in. Great form, I don't think, going into that game. And uh, it was an opportunity for Dortmund to, to, to do something that they have again passed up, as they seem to do every year at this time of year. Hmm. Yep. Typical. Well, we did predict it. They're, yeah. yeah. I'm not, and look, they're not out of it. I'm, I'm just saying I don't know what to expect week on week from this team. Yeah. Uh, well, there you go, my friend. That is... That is the show for this week. I should mention before we get out uh, that the, uh, the U.S. men's national team is going to play Trinidad and Tobago um, on January 31st to cap off that January, the January camp uh, in Orlando. And apparently there will be fans as well. Uh, so people will be able to witness the U.S. men in person. And we hope it's safe and uh, well-spaced. There will be at least six feet of space between each group of fans in the stands. They have said that. And everybody will be required to wear face coverings uh, in order to attend the game. So, yes, hopefully, first and foremost, hopefully it's as safe an environment as possible. But for our purposes, it'll be nice to be able to watch the U.S. men in action against their bitter rivals, Trinidad <laughs> and Tobago. Maybe put uh, that rivalry behind us, finally. No, impossible. I... We'll never let it go. Those who have uh, wronged us. Those, oh, the list. We'll have to dust off the list. This was fun, though. A big thanks to uh, Ollie Franklin Wallace from GQ Magazine for uh, talking with us about the, the feature that they did on Christian Pulisic. I encourage everyone listening. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, obviously, you're probably also interested in Christian Pulisic. And if that's the case, you have to go read um, th that article in GQ. It's, it's a pretty interesting uh, and introspective look at America's best player. This was fun, man. I hope, you, uh, I hope you have a good rest of the week. To you, I say... Check you later, phone boy. See ya. Take care, my man.